Hello and welcome to the Healthy Entrepreneur Club podcast. My name is Freddie Pullen and I'm your host. And today I thought we'd go through five business strategies to consider in this bank holiday Eid week here in the UAE. So as entrepreneurs, you know, we're not the kind of people that are going to want to sit around and, and do nothing in a, in a week off. A lot of people are going to be away on holiday this week. Maybe you're on holiday, but what we want to think about is keeping those creative juices flowing. You know, I'm sure when you go on holiday, you're a bit like me, where you're going to take a book with you and try and read and learn something new. And, and you're going to go back to your business super uh, motivated and invigorated to make some changes. So I thought rather than give you a podcast about the healthy ways to rejuvenate and relax and switch off, why not do the opposite and give you a few things to consider this week that you could implement in the next quarter to really push your business forward. So I've already sent this out to our, um, our members in our newsletter this morning, our Monday morning meeting, because I had the exact same thought you know, with them and I thought I'll just let everyone know there are a few ways that you can really start to think about changing your business around um, or at least implementing a small things that will take it to the next level. And so let's, let's jump into the podcast, shall we? The first area I really wanted to talk about is something that's close to my heart. My corporate experience is mostly within product. So product being it, both service, but also physical product. And the idea, the idea being it's what are you actually selling? So a good example of a product could be Google selling Gmail, or you know, if you've got a furniture store, your product is obviously your furniture. So we're talking really about your core offering here. And what I want to talk about is how you can constantly iterate change throughout your product. So the best way to grow your net work and your net worth is to create a great product. Now, if you've got something that is some, you know, you're, you're bringing something in like furniture or like um, a, a physical product, which is not necessarily your own, you're a wholesale, you're buying it wholesale and selling it on. Obviously that product is subject to however you bought it from, but the product becomes you and your surroundings, right? So it's the entire process from when a customer walks into your shop, if it's a physical location, and, uh, and the whole experience they go through. In the same way, if you're a coach or if you have got a business that helps with you know, meditation, well-being, whatever it is, it's a service-based business, the product becomes the whole process from start to finish. How does the customer feel? How do they actually get change from you? Um, and how can you improve that? So really what you want to think about is iterative change. You never want to be on the back step in product. You want to always be looking at R&D. So how can you think about what your customer is doing and how you can solve the next problem they're having? So a quick bit of advice you could do is try and understand every time you see a customer or interact with a customer, just ask them, you know, how are you finding it so far? What, what are you finding as a challenge in your life? What are the next problems? Because what you ideally want to do is solve the next problem. So in terms of tech product, you know, what, what, what we would look at in tech product is how is, a pro how is the product needing to change based on maybe the season, maybe buying trends, maybe just, you know, as time goes on, people change and their buying habits change. So what you should think about this week when you're sat there, you know, just thinking about your business is how can you iteratively or i.e. make small changes to your business to, to take that 1% every day that will ideally create that product that people come back to you more often. Product is the core thing that we're trying to sell, right? Everyone has a product, whether it's service or, um, or physical, as I said. So I think that's one of the things we need to keep doing. And actually, it's, it's one of those things that almost sounds obvious, like obviously you want to become better at what you sell or you want to sell a better thing. 
but people don't do it often enough. They are they're very reactive to a drop off in revenue or you know, they struggle with their client acquisition. If you're constantly looking at, you know, what makes someone want to buy from you and what the issues are if they're not buying from you, how can you improve that product? That is something that is, is more powerful than you think. And obviously we can delve into that a bit more deeply, but here it's just to give you that overview of what do you think is the, is the reason that someone is or isn't buying from you? What's their next problem and how can you solve it? The next thing I want to go over is um, mission, vision, values, and success criteria. So we put them into one area because most people, I'm sure all of you have heard of mission, vision, and values because when you start a company, one of the main things you do is a mission statement. So company's purpose and what it aims to achieve. You then might be challenged to some sort of moonshot or like what is your biggest next step? Someone will ask you your vision. So what's the company's aspirations and long-term goals? So it could be that, you know, your company now does one thing, but in the future, you'd like to solve this problem. You'd like to, you know, for, a great example is Elon Musk, right? So he's sold flamethrowers, cars. Um, he puts rockets in space to launch satellites. But his vision is to populate Mars. So at the moment, he's talking about his mission, but his vision is to populate Mars. So it's really good to think about that when you're going around your business, you know, having that mission and that impact of the vision you have is more powerful than just going day to day with your head down trying to take the next step. If you're in a, an abundance mindset where you're able to look up from just your next step and you have a bit of, um, a bit of space between, you know, um, the revenue you are making and the revenue you're needing to spend, i.e. you're in profit, there is a lot of power in looking at what your vision could be for the future. Not necessarily how your business gets there, but what you want to do is your bigger impact. And the reason for that is that impacts make sales. So if you say now, you know, you're selling ice creams out of an ice cream truck, and that's what you're doing now, and your mission might be to provide the best ice cream to, um, to kids in the Middle East. That's your, that's your mission right now. But your vision is to reduce child hunger across the whole of the, uh, the MENA region. That's sort of the idea. And the idea there is that obviously that bigger impact brings in more people, but also it's something deeper to you that you can cut through the noise of your business when it starts to get a bit hard because your fridge breaks and your, your ice creams are leaking and you think, oh, you know, I might just give up. Well, no, because you're on that bigger path to solving a bigger problem. And then obviously you've got your values there, which are the guiding principles that shape the company's culture and behavior. That's super important in bringing in customers, but also bringing in employees. And whenever you're networking, it's one of the main things you should be talking about. What are your actual values and why, what makes you different? I've glossed over those three pretty quickly because the one I really want to get to and people don't talk about enough. And it's the first question I'll ask when we work with any entrepreneurs, when someone becomes a member of the Entrepreneurs Club, is the success criteria. So as an entrepreneur, what does success look like to you? It's the exact same thing you would ask an entrepreneur when they say, you know, I want to join an exit mastermind. I want in 12 months or 24 months, I'd like to sell my business. Well, why? Why do you want to sell your business? Do you actually want the money or do you just want to work less hours in your business? Or, you know, as an entrepreneur in your success criteria, when will you actually be happy? There's a really good study recently who I'll have to dig out and put into the, uh, the description of this podcast where it asked people how much money or how many multiples of the money they make now would you need to be happy, quote unquote. And every single one of them said, three times. Well, the average was three times. So for example, if you're on 
$30,000 a year. To be happy, they would need to be on $90,000 a year. Someone on $300,000 a year wanted $900,000 a year. Someone on $10 million a year wanted $30 million a year. And that was what they said deemed them to be happy. So for you, what is your success criteria? When would you be happy? Because because you know that is one of the reasons we find unhappiness or unhealthiness in a business. When we work with people, they don't know what they're actually working towards. So is it that you want to work four hours in your business? Is it that you want to be worth 10 million pounds or dollars or whatever it is? Or is it that you want to have an impact and change the world for whatever you're doing? What does success look like to you? Which is actually a much bigger question. You should really open a document on your computer or your, your, or your notes right now as you're sat there and write down what does success look like to you? Because I'm sure you'll be thinking, I know what success looks like to me. I know what I'm trying to achieve. Okay, well, open your notes and write it down because it's harder than you think, especially when I question why it's only monetary. You know, is it actually monetary what you're looking for in terms of success? Or is it a combination of money and health? That's what we find most people talk about. You know, we spoke this week uh, to some entrepreneurs and they, they were quoting, um, I think it's Bob Dylan who said, once you reach the top, you'll realize you're at the bottom. And that is the case for so many entrepreneurs because they, they make money, they make money, they make money. They get to a point where they think they're happy and then they realize I've negated my health. And actually I could have used and harnessed my health to grow my business quicker. So there's a lot to be said for understanding your success criteria early on, linking it to your mission, your vision, your values, and working towards that. Because if you've got an end goal, which most business owners do not, you'll find yourself taking much larger steps towards that end goal than you would if you just open-endedly say, I just want to have a business. Because that is so difficult as a human to compute. The next step I want to go on in, I'll go into sorry, is OKRs. So this one is very much just for your team. So an OKR is an objective and key results. And this is a, a technique or a theory or a, a methodology which is used by Google and is actually used by most uh, corporates. So whenever I've worked in large corporates, you know, uh, a billion pounds plus, they all use OKRs to, to manage their people. Or, yeah, to manage their people, but also if they're trying to look at improving their investor relationships, to improve their share price, to try and grow, or actually if they're on an acquisition plan, to try and merge or buy other companies, you have to have a way of keeping all your people in um I was going to say in line, but not in line at all. It's just uh, aligned to the strategic goal of the business. And you know what? I think what's really interesting with this one is that a lot of businesses don't even have an appraisal system in place to benefit the business and the people. They think you know we'll appraise our our staff once a year or every six months. We literally spoke to an entrepreneur this week who doesn't like the appraisal process. It's once a year they appraise thirty or forty staff, and they dread it because everyone just moans wants more money and is unhappy. Well, you know, as you're listening to this, I'm sure you're thinking exactly what I'm thinking. Why don't you address the issues? Because money is not the only issue in a business. If someone, if an employee wants more money, can they prove that they deserve that money? An OKR will help with that. Can they, if they're asking for more perks, does an, does an OKR help with that? Well, it should. It's a very good tool to align the business towards the strategic goals, but also define what, an, what employees across the board would deserve based on what they're up to um, comparatively. So OKR, objective and key results. 
the way you can picture this, and I'm sure you can Google it really, really simply, you would have an objective, and the objective would be the same, a strategic objective would be the same for the cleaner or the janitor as it would be for the CEO or senior management. It's the exact same objective, and that is that comes from the board or the investors, whoever whoever's deciding what the company is trying to achieve. The objective stays at the top. Then beneath that, you would then have more objectives based on your role. So, for example, if the company says in the next year we want to increase our uh, share price by 5%, that's the objective. The objective uh, uh, for the CEO might be like uh, manage manage the tech department to do this, manage the marketing department to do this, explore uh, partnerships in Australasia, da 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 across. The janitor might be, it's a, for example, it's, a, it's a, uh, like a coffee shop chain. The janitor has the exact same thing. We were trying to increase our share price by 5%. And the janitors will be to, you know, one of them could be keep the store at the best cleanliness level we can achieve from outdoor, outside third party um, auditors. Uh, keep your, if you've got staff, keep your staff aligned to the value, whatever, whatever. But the point is that they are all aligned towards one strategic goal. That's how you would set out the objectives. Key results would then be dependent on the appraisal period. So normally in a large company, you would be appraised once a month. So it's really, really quick, if not every two weeks, because the idea is that you are constantly accountable to what you're up to. So a large business who is on an acquisition plan or is just is successful, they will be able to be accounted to every single one of their employees, what they're up to, why we are spending money on each employee. So for example, in the companies that I've worked in, a meeting is a big thing to do. So if you put, if I call a meeting with 10 staff, you could, you could say that that meeting for one hour is worth whatever it's worth, you know, 2000 pounds. I would be in big trouble if that meeting did not need to be a meeting or if someone in that meeting didn't need to be there or they did need to be there, but they didn't contribute. They become what we would call meeting lettuce. All of that comes towards the idea that we are, we are not just here because this is a job. We are here because we are on this mission to achieve these strategic goals. And every single meeting, email, whatever it is you spend, if you spend company time, you're spending company money. And by thinking like that and putting objectives in place, you're far more likely to achieve your strategic goals. So going back to the actual framework, at the appraisal each month, you would set realistic goals or key results that take your team member towards that strategic goal. So like I said, the janitor might have their ones that are to do with the cleaning and the cleanliness of the place. After a month, they'd go to their manager. The manager would say, has this been done? They'd have to show that it's been done. They'd have to prove that it's been done. They would then talk about the benefits of what they've, what, why they've done that. And they would set new goals. And obviously the new goals for the next month would be slightly higher. So we're always looking at that one or 2% increase or in improvement or enhancement in the performance every time. And what you see then is if every single member of staff has that, they understand that they are working towards a bigger goal and they play a key role in achieving the overall targets. Then they understand if we hit these, I should be in line for a bonus, an improvement in pay, a perk, because they can see that the overall goal was to improve the share price. Therefore, there is money available to pay down. If you don't do this and you just once a year say, we're going to appraise you, have you had a good year? Have you been in trouble? Yes or no? They just go, I deserve more money because I've been here a year. And you go, well, I don't really know if you do. I haven't really made more money than business. I can't really justify it. You've got no system 
to prove if you should or should not be putting money towards that person. OKRs are very simple. They take a bit more time than a usual appraisal in terms of cadence, not in terms of actual time. An OKR meeting can be 15 minutes, but you've got to do it once a month, in my opinion, rather than once a year. But the benefits you will have from that will be massive. And then you start to realize that if people are not hitting these OKRs every month, that's when you have staff churn because they are not able to keep up with the cadence of the business. You're able to churn the staff. That person's not performing. Put them on a warning. Two OKRs later, they're still not hitting them. You have then got grounds to dismiss that person. They are not able to keep up with the cadence of that company relative to the other staff who obviously would all have to be hitting those targets. It's a really, really powerful tool to align your business to its overarching strategic goals. It's Google approved. Uh, it's simple. And you should definitely be looking into it for your staff, whether you've got two or three staff, 50, 100,000, 5,000, you should definitely be looking at OKRs. The next thing that I think is really, really interesting, I've called consumer psychology, you could call it um, user experience, you could call it um, customer experience. I'm calling it consumer psychology because this is really interesting to me. As we worked in product, we were looking at uh, 500 million users per month. So obviously we're talking about a lot of people, a lot of money. And we had to constantly look at the psychology of the person we believe was spying from us, through us, whatever, for us. And someone that I went to university with actually went straight into uh, a role at the UK's largest supermarket chain. And I've spoken to them recently and they have got 16 full-time psychologists at that company. And those psychologists are there to focus on increasing and driving the average order value of those individual supermarkets across the country. And by that, I mean, when a customer comes in, they might spend $10. How can you make that $11? And then how can the next time you make that $12? How can you increase that average every time? And it's really, really interesting because you can do this in your service business. You can do this if you've got a shop, if you've got an online business. You know, we proved that we could do it on just an online business. I'm talking now about a physical location business. It works everywhere. And it's something you've got to, got to think about. So picture this, right? So I've lived in three countries. Uh, I've lived in the UK, I've lived in France, and I've lived in the UAE. And supermarkets are the same in all three. Supermarkets will have bread, eggs, and milk, usually in the furthest three corners of the supermarket, right? So if you go in, you might see milk will be closest to the checkouts because you can just grab it and leave. Eggs will be in the absolute furthest corner and then bread will be somewhere else. They're never together. And the reason for this is that the psychologists, the people that are in the know at these, these companies, they understand that when you come in, those three are usually staples on what you're going to buy. In the same way that in a lot of places, alcohol will be the furthest place, fairly near to the eggs. Because certainly in the UK or in France, people are going to go there. So they create that sort of triangle that you're, you're, you're going to walk around. They stay in the same place and then everything else quarterly usually will move, right? So we all know that at the end of an aisle is the place where things move the quickest. But in the aisle, these items are usually be moved around quarterly, maybe halfly through that throughout the year. And the reason for that is that they know you're going to walk that triangle and they know then you're going to learn subconsciously where things are. And you're going to take the shortest possible route to go and buy your biscuits or go and buy your tea bags or go and buy your, uh, your whatever. And they need you, the psychologists need you to unlearn that so you wander more throughout the shop, right? And this is exactly the same. If you think about IKEA, IKEA force you, and they obviously have a team of psychologists as well, 
they force you to walk one way around um, the IKEA store. Obviously, you can take shortcuts in IKEA, but most people don't because you are there for the experience. And you know that there's going to be different sections throughout IKEA. So you just walk, you just wander through and things will change because of trends and seasons. But also, next time you go, things won't be exactly where they last were. They might be fairly close in IKEA because it's not the same principle, but they won't be in the exact same place. And it's for the exact same reason that they want you to walk somewhere thinking you know where it is. You look at a new product, think about it, maybe pick it up, and then you will go and find your other product. Or they'll put something more expensive in that place. You'll pick it up because you think your old product's gone. Later on, you'll walk past that product you're actually looking for, and you won't bother to replace it because you'll go, oh, I found this one now. It's a bit more expensive, but I don't mind it. And the reason I'm talking about this is the average order value and consumer psychology are directly linked. And one of the ways you can get around this is by reducing the barriers to purchase. So in those two examples I've just shown, they're both stores where things are not going to be, in, they're not going to be massively more expensive, right? They're going to be maybe slightly more expensive or they're the same price or they're going to just make you buy more, not necessarily just more expensive things. So you need to think about reducing the barriers to purchase. So why are customers not buying from you? Are they, compete, are they comparing prices to someone else? Are they comparing quality? Are they just not quite sure they trust you? Uh, you know, it's that, um, that no like trust that we try and build up with people. Do you know me? Do you like me? And then do you trust me? And only if you have all three of those will you probably buy. And that's the same in stores. You're more unlikely to buy from a random store you've never walked past, you know, unless you, uh, you really, really need to. A good example of this, um, which I can only speak about in the UK, are Amazon buttons. So a few years ago, and I don't know if they still do them now, you were able to buy on Amazon literally a little magnetic button. So you'd have it on things like your fridge, you could have it on your, your washing machine, and you'd buy it and it would link to one product. So for example, if you wanted um, washing machine detergent, you could buy a, what's a washing machine detergent? Calgon. You could buy a Calgon button and you could put it magnetically onto your washing machine so that when you run out of washing powder, you click the button and the next day, the exact same Calgon that you're already using will turn up at your door. You could do the exact same thing on your fridge and you could have um, you know, a bottle of wine or you could have milk, whatever turned up. One of the most popular ones that they had was toilet roll because no one really cares what toilet roll they have. You know, you probably just buy the same one if it's you know, really soft or less soft. No one really wants to go for the, the no, zero soft, right? So. <laughs> to the least soft. So you usually would just have a button, you just click it and it would come. And it never really caught on because you are not in control of price and that kind of thing. But for a while it was doing really well. They had thousands of units out there and I'm sure some people still use them. And the reason they did that was to completely remove the barrier to purchase. If you are literally running out of washing machine detergent, you know, you're, you're probably busy, maybe you've done a couple of loads, you press that button and it's going to arrive the next day. As long as it's not five or $10 more expensive than the last time, you probably don't care. It's gonna turn up, it's perfect. So can you think about that in your business right now? Can you think about reducing the barriers to purchase? And so, you know, in a coffee shop, this is my example, I've gone straight to a coffee shop. The most annoying thing about a coffee shop is the queue. That's the most annoying thing for me. If there's a queue, I'll walk past and go to the next one. Can you reduce the time people have to wait in the coffee shop? Maybe you can. If you've got an online e-commerce store, can you reduce the amount of clicks? This is one of the biggest things in online stores. Can you reduce the amount of clicks necessary to make that purchase? So Amazon 
what, roughly three clicks. Add to basket, select delivery address, confirm payment, done. Three clicks, it's all saved. That's because the more clicks you do, the more barriers there are. And that is possible for all businesses. Um, the, the last thing I think is worth saying there is just understanding the customer flow or the consumer flow. So how do they like to buy? We've kind of gone over that a little bit, but how does someone like to buy? How are they finding you? How are they finding your product? And how are they flowing through your, your customer journey, your consumer journey? Understanding that is really powerful because then you understand where they're falling out of your funnel. If we call it a funnel, for example. So um, yeah, like a, custom, like, a, like a furniture store, for example. If it's really, if there's no path to walk around, literally a physical path, there's no flow or there's no incentive to buy, there's no, um, there's no extra value being added, there's, they're more likely they're just going to walk out the shop. It's just one of those things. You've got to try and hook someone in, understand the psychology of what they're thinking, their feeling. You know, so a good example actually there would be their feelings. In a, in a um, furniture store, one of the biggest things you're going to have as an issue is, do they like the design? Fine. Do they like the quality? Fine. But then they're going to have to justify to you know, their husband or wife, or if they're buying it together, they're going to have to justify to each other the money that they're going to spend on that furniture. So can you improve that feeling they get and reduce that barrier to purchase? So you could reduce that feeling by giving them a warranty, by giving them free delivery, by giving them some, some extra cushions, even just by letting them try it out for a bit or you know, bringing them a coffee. There are so many things that make them feel more relaxed. No, like, trust. And the last area that I think is worth thinking about is Customer acquisition versus customer retention. This is a massive thing for a lot of businesses. Most entrepreneurs are really, really keen on marketing. They're really keen on looking outwards and trying to put their arms out and bring in as many customers as possible. But they don't think about the customers that they already have. Referring to staff, it is 10 times more expensive to hire new staff than to keep the same ones. That's something that we sort, of, we sort of know, don't we? No one wants to lose their staff because you know you get to advertise and train. You're going, to drip, you're going to drop revenue. Why don't you think about that in terms of your customers? If you've got a customer who's come in, uh, they've, they've gone through the whole process we've already mentioned, they've then bought from you, and then you let them go. And you're like, oh, well, maybe their, their product will break in five years' time. They might come back. Well, why don't you go and hold on to them? Why don't you try and get them to join you know, your newsletter? Why don't you get them to join or have, you know, buy add-ons? Trying to keep a customer is far more beneficial than trying to get new ones. Look at Netflix, look at Amazon. Netflix is actually a great example because they know they're, they're around something like 600,000, 600 million users, excuse me. They know that that is a massive number, right? So it's a 16th of the world's population. Are you likely to get five times more than that? Probably not because there's competitors, there's people that just don't like this, there's people that haven't got access to TVs, whatever. So how can they improve their experience? Well, they have got hundreds of product managers who will be working on different ways to improve your user experience, to make the business more efficient. Because they know that if they can retain you, that's a better business model than trying to find new people. The cost per acquisition or cost per lead is less. That's something that you can think about. Your customers that you currently have, that you've worked for before, or that are you know, sniffing around you now because they're interested, how can you get them to stay with you and become loyal rather than just pouring money into uh, ads at other people? You're far better off having 100 raving fans than you are 1,000 unengaged watchers, for lack of a better word. I think that's really, really interesting. And what's interesting 
to understand is that data is the new gold. And this is the bit I really wanted to get into. In my cor corporate experience, we had uh, a business intelligence team, but we also had data scientists. And data scientists would sit in on almost every single meeting we had. You know, that for me, when we started, seemed, seemed incredible. Why would you have a data scientist in every single meeting? But it's because understanding your business and the market internally is so incredibly powerful. So what data have you got in your business that you should be looking at, whether it be you know, customer acquisition, average order value, um, everything? What, what can you learn? How can you draw it out? How can you present it to yourself that makes it usable but also beneficial to keep your business ticking over and running, running forwards? Think about all the data you have. You must collect a lot of data in your business. For your, even for your marketing funnels, you know a lot about these people, right? One of the things uh, that was quite incredible is that in the UK, actually the same company I mentioned earlier, the, large, the UK's largest uh, supermarket chain, they have more data on us as UK citizens, even though I'm based in Dubai, they've got more, more data on us as UK citizens than uh, the government do. They have more data points because they can track you and everything, they, everything you buy. So that means that they can then use their cookies and their adverts to, to, to track and to market things to you. So for example, if you buy you know, hot chocolate powder every month, they know that after about three and a half weeks, you're getting a bit low and they're gonna market hot chocolate to you. That's a kind of, that's a, you know, it's an extreme example, but for you and your business, there is a lot of data that you will have if you, if you hook it out to help you with your marketing, but also to help the driving your direction of your business. Data is the new gold, and it's uh, something that we really, really should be looking at, especially when we've got things like AI, machine learning. One of the things we've got currently um, coming out fairly soon is our uh, health entrepreneur algorithm, which is this incredible technology where we monitor your mood, we can monitor your, um, your health and well-being activity and your business KPIs that you put all into this platform. And then over time, it will tell you the patterns that it's seeing. So if you're doing if your mood is down, you're doing less exercise and your business is suffering, we can literally pull out that pattern and say, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. I recommend that you do this, this, and this because your goal is to improve your business. And if you do this for the same, for the same uh, again and again, sorry, for the next six months, your business will look like this. So it's data-led well-being and it's so incredibly powerful to have data on you and your business and then tie it together. And it's basically come from this idea, right? So looking at my, bit, my experience in customer acquisition and the idea of data in business, well, actually, I'm super interested in data in myself. You know, if, I, if I've done too much exercise or too little exercise and I've eaten poorly or I've done something that's maybe dropped my mood and my creativity and productivity has dropped and my business is then impacted, I want to be told that. I want it, that to be visual to me because you won't notice until it's too late. It'll be three or four weeks down the line and you go, I've, I've been really tired recently and we really dropped revenue and some of our leads have gone away and staff and the team are really sad. Well, that's because you're not tracking yourself. You're tracking your business, but you're not tracking yourself. And then our system can then tell you, you should be doing this, mindful activity, you should be doing more walking, you should be eating better. You know, and over time, we'll be able to then develop things into that that can supply those for you. But for now, for us, this is one of the most powerful things we can give to our, our club members. That system which talks about your well-being, but li links it to how it benefits your business and literally tells you what's happening and what you should do and then how it interacts with your goals that are also in the system. So that's the podcast episode for today. Um, head over to the healthyentrepreneurclub.com. We have a really good test on there, which will be the first step you can take to becoming a healthy entrepreneur and understanding 
how a healthy uh, mindset, a healthy you and a healthy business all link together and how you can really get into that healthy hustle to learn more and to grow yourself. Uh, so that's, that, that's on our website. That's the, the um, how healthy are you test. And it will give you really good personalized feedback, which you should definitely be thinking about taking if you're on this journey to become a healthier entrepreneur and to grow your business, which are inherently linked. Um, so thank you for listening and stay tuned. We've got three, three episodes a week. We've got amazing guests uh, this week and next coming up. So thank you for listening and I will speak to you soon.